You can now get two free audiobook downloads and a 30-day free trial at audible.pagosity.tv. Your choice from the world's largest selection of over 180,000 digital audiobooks and spoken word content for your iOS or Android device, Kindle, or MP3 player. Go to audible.pagosity.tv now. Welcome to the Bogosity Podcast for the week of July 8th, 2018. The podcast that reflects in Vincent's eyes of China Blue. This is your host, Shane Killian. Let's deprocrastinate the news of the bogus. And this week, all three items are recent Supreme Court rulings. Two good, one bad, so they're preserving their basic 50-50 track record we keep seeing. Of course, that's a lot better than the rest of government, but still, it'd be nice if they could do better. So we'll start off with a good one. Janus, the American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees, Council 31. Here, the Supreme Court ruled that Illinois violated First Amendment rights of workers by forcing them to pay dues to unions even if they didn't want to join. They were extracting fees from non-members. On the face of it, it's very simple. If employees don't want to pay union dues, it's because they feel they're not getting that value from them. And really, most of what unions did for workers in the past has been made superfluous by government. OSHA, health benefits, unemployment insurance, workers' comp, etc. Those were all things that unions did for their workers. And when they got political power, they decided that they didn't want to pay for it, so they got government to do it for them but they're still extracting dues from workers. But understand, unions are political action groups. They give heavily to politicians, mostly Democrats. Look around OpenSecrets.org. When you look at the biggest PACs and the biggest donors to politicians, most of them are unions. In fact, 90% of union dues are generally spent on lobbying. So in Illinois and other states, they're taking money by force and giving it to Democrats and the Democratic Party. And these dues can easily be $1,000 a year or more, so workers are being forced to give $900 or more to Democrats. As the ruling states, quote, If a majority of the employees in a bargaining unit vote to be represented by a union, that union is designated as the exclusive representative of all the employees, even those who do not join. Only the union may engage in collective bargaining. Individual employees may not be represented by another agent or negotiate directly with their employer. Non-members are required to pay what is generally called an agency fee, i.e. a percentage of the full union dues. We conclude that this arrangement violates the free speech rights of non-members by compelling them to subsidize private speech on matters of substantial public concern. We have held time and time again that freedom of speech includes both the right to speak freely and the right to refrain from speaking at all. Compelling individuals to mouth support for views they find objectionable violates that cardinal constitutional command, and in most contexts, any such effort would be universally condemned. Suppose, for example, that the state of Illinois required all residents to sign a document expressing support for a particular set of positions on controversial public issues, say the platform of one of the major political parties. No one we trust would seriously argue that the First Amendment permits this. Compelling a person to subsidize the speech of other private speakers raises similar First Amendment concerns. As Jefferson famously put it, 
to compel a man to furnish contributions of money for the propagation of opinions which he disbelieves and abhors is sinful and tyrannical. They responded to the inevitable free rider arguments that progressives always seem to bring up when they don't have any actual rationale for their case, quote, Suppose that a particular group lobbies or speaks out on behalf of what it thinks are the needs of senior citizens or veterans or physicians. To take just a few examples, could the government require that all seniors, veterans, or doctors pay for that service even if they object? It has never been thought that this is permissible. The First Amendment does not permit the government to compel a person to pay for another party's speech just because the government thinks that the speech furthers the interests of the person who does not want to pay. Of course, progressives got their panties in a twist about it. Elizabeth Warren tweeted, Corporate interests have been rigging the system against workers for decades, and the Supreme Court just handed those interests a huge victory in Janus v. AFSCME. But I've got news for the billionaires behind this case. We're not going anywhere. Lady, you are the billionaires behind this case. Your donations are full of unions and their representatives, whereas the aggrieved party in this case, Mark Janus, is hardly a billionaire. Progressives keep claiming they support the little guy against the billionaires, but as we keep seeing, exactly the opposite is the case. Senator Bob Casey tweeted, The U.S. Supreme Court is showing its opposition to the rights of working families and common sense. If someone directly benefits from the negotiations by a union, it makes sense that they should pay a fee to cover the costs associated with this work and not get a free ride. This effort in the courts was nothing more than a well-funded attempt by corporate billionaires to dismantle unions. Free riding on what, Casey? Being forced to pay for donations to people like you when they don't agree with you? How is that free riding? Enjoy all those sweet union donations, Casey. The DNC said the decision was taking rights away from workers, so being forced to pay for something you might not want is a right all of a sudden. Kagan's dissent was absolutely ridiculous, claiming that little regard was given for Stare Decisis when pretty much half the opinion was based on that. The one precedent, Abood, was very much an anomaly in First Amendment cases, and you're supposed to consider the whole of the precedents, including the one since Abood, showing the problems and inconsistencies with it, not just pick out the one case that agrees with you and ignores the rest. Justice Alito delivered the opinion, and Roberts, Kennedy, Thomas, and Gorsuch confirmed. So like in previous Supreme Court episodes, we'll give them one point. Descending were Sotomayor, Kagan, Ginsburg, and Breyer. So now you know which justices will throw freedom of speech under the bus for the sake of politics. So we give them negative one point. Say, if you're tired of the promos in this podcast, well, the patrons got it early and with no ads or promos. Just go to patreon.bogosity.tv and donate at any level. Do you have children or nieces or nephews? Are you homeschooling or just want to counter some of the socialist indoctrination most children get in school? If so, go to bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins and you'll be taken to a website where you can get some great books for elementary age children. The Tuttle Twins books are books about liberty and free market economics that include children's versions of Bastiat's The Law, Leonard Reed's I Pencil, and Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, as well as books about the Federal Reserve and how regulations protect business cronies. They'll learn about the harm caused by eminent domain or regulations passed in the name of safety and fundamental concepts of liberty. 
and as you can see from the sample pages on the website, they're all easy to read and nicely illustrated. They're just $9.99 a piece, or get a special discount as well as free bonuses when you purchase all five. You can even buy in bulk to donate to schools and local libraries. So get the Tuttle Twins books at bogosity.tv slash Tuttle Twins. Now a decision that isn't so great, and Justice Kennedy sadly went against his own more rational history. This is South Dakota v. Wayfair, Inc., which vacated a ruling that a state cannot require an out-of-state seller with no physical presence in the state to collect and remit sales taxes on goods the seller ships to consumers in the state. South Dakota wanted to tax Internet sales from sellers from other states who had no presence whatsoever in South Dakota. But according to the Constitution, not to mention over 200 years of judicial precedent, states are not supposed to be able to impose taxes, duties, imposts, and other restrictions on goods and services originating from other states. In particular, this ruling overturns two long-standing precedents, Quillcorp v. North Dakota and Bellis Hess v. Illinois. These precedents stated that states can only tax out-of-state products if there's a substantial nexus, and even then only if it doesn't place undue burdens on interstate commerce. Substantial nexus means that the business in question must have some sort of physical presence in the state, not counting residences. But according to the ruling, out-of-state sellers are now required to collect the tax and remit it to the state. Kennedy's opinion is very disappointing, despite what he claimed. All of the things he says make this a substantial nexus that requires a tax are all things that other taxes are already covering. Police and fire protection are covered by property taxes. Roads used for delivery of goods are covered by the gas tax. And there's already taxes on internet access. Everything used in your state to facilitate this transaction is already covered by other taxes. You do not need a separate sales tax to cover it. And remember, this is a tax imposed on the seller. The seller must collect the tax and remit it to the state. And Kennedy basically says that physical presence doesn't matter. Check this out, quote, A company with a website accessible in South Dakota may be said to have a physical presence in the state via the customer's computers. A website may leave cookies saved to the customer's hard drives, or customers may download the company's app to their phones. So if you go out and request a website and it's displayed on your computer, all of a sudden the people behind that website are located in your home, according to Kennedy. He thinks that this means the seller is physically in your house. And he says this change needs to be made because, quote, the argument, moreover, that the physical presence rule is clear and easy to apply is unsound. Attempts to apply the physical presence rule to online retail sales are proving unworkable. Aw, poor widow babies! Websites are much more akin to mail-order catalogs than a business operating in your state, and it was never the case that mail-order catalogs had to charge sales tax. It really seems like if you want to have good rulings in the Internet age, you shouldn't rely on a bunch of old farts who don't have the first clue of how it works. This isn't just states. It's municipalities like cities and counties. There are over 10,000 such tax locations all over the country that online sellers now have to keep track of. I'm including an article here saying how Kennedy has even gone against his own opinions before. Quote, 
Kennedy was one of the most ardent defenders of the much maligned Dormant Commerce Clause and one of the most reliable votes in favor of litigants who challenged state and local laws on the ground that they violated that doctrine. As he wrote in his dissent in Department of Revenue of Kentucky v. Davis, Courts must intervene to strike down state laws that unduly burden interstate commerce because otherwise we might end up waiting for decades until Congress can act. And then came Wayfair, quote, It would oversimplify matters to say that Kennedy's vote went against business interests, notwithstanding the fact that the e-commerce companies Wayfair, Overstock.com, and Newegg were aligned on the losing side against South Dakota. Brick-and-mortar stores like Lowe's, Home Depot, Target, and Walmart wholeheartedly supported South Dakota's efforts to tax online sales. Wayfair was a business-versus-business case, as well as a state-versus-business dispute. The writer actually seems to be praising Kennedy for this, funnily enough, even though he's going over all the way people are harmed by this decision. Roberts dissented, saying that Justice Kennedy's arguments are, quote, the very reason I oppose discarding the physical presence rule. E-commerce has grown into a significant and vibrant part of our national economy against the backdrop of established rules, including the physical presence rule. Any alteration to those rules with the potential to disrupt the development of such a critical segment of the economy should be undertaken by Congress. The court should not act on this important question of current economic policy. This is neither the first nor the second, but the third time this court has been asked whether a state may obligate sellers with no physical presence within its borders to collect tax on sales to residents. Whatever salience the adage third time's a charm has in daily life, it is a poor guide to Supreme Court decision making. The court breezily disregards the costs that this decision will impose on retailers. Correctly calculating and remitting sales taxes on all e-commerce sales will likely prove baffling for many retailers. Over 10,000 jurisdictions levy sales taxes, each with different tax rates, different rules governing tax-exempt goods and services, different product category definitions, and different standards for determining whether an out-of-state seller has a substantial presence in the jurisdiction. The burden will fall disproportionately on small businesses. Concurring with Kennedy were Thomas, Ginsburg, Alito, and Gorsuch, and we deduct one point from each of them. Descending were Roberts, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan. So we give them a point. That gives them all zero points all total, except for Roberts, who has two points, and Ginsburg, who has negative two. If you're on the Wi-Fi in a coffee shop or hotel, anyone on that network can get your traffic. Do you really trust all of those strangers? For that matter, do you really trust your ISP? A VPN can protect you from prying eyes, disguise your location, and even foil government censors. It's essential in this day and age. So go to vpn.pagosity.tv and you'll be taken to BoxPN. Starting at just $2.99 a month, you can get unlimited high-speed connections to VPN servers all over the world. And they don't log connections, so your privacy is assured. Traveling abroad, just VPN home. And don't worry about what those other governments are doing. Back at home, stop your ISP from traffic shaping and messing with the quality internet access you're paying good money for. You can connect from multiple machines at once, including your smartphone or tablet, and it supports all the secure standards, including OpenVPN and SSTP. Bypass sensors and surveillance with your own secure VPN connection. Go to vpn.pagosity.tv. For our final story, we go back to another good ruling, Carpenter v. United States. 
Please note that there was a previous Carpenter v. United States four years ago that should not be confused with this case. This one is docket number 16-402. The government got Timothy Carpenter's cell phone location records from wireless carriers in an attempt to track his whereabouts in relation to multiple crimes, and his location was used in court as evidence of guilt. The Sixth Circuit affirmed the finding of the lower courts that Carpenter lacked a reasonable expectation of privacy in the location information collected by the FBI because he had shared that information with his wireless carriers, and therefore this wasn't a Fourth Amendment violation. The Supreme Court reversed that ruling, saying that this location data is a search under the Fourth Amendment. All of these are 5-4 opinions, by the way, so again, with the Supreme Court, just flip a coin. The court ruled, quote, the digital data at issue, personal location information maintained by a third party, does not fit neatly under existing precedents, but lies at the intersection of two lines of cases. One set addresses a person's expectation of privacy in his physical location and movements. The other addresses a person's expectation of privacy and information voluntarily turned over to third parties. A majority of the court has already recognized that individuals have a reasonable expectation of privacy in the whole of their physical movements, allowing access to cell site records, which hold for many Americans the privacies of life, contravenes that expectation. In fact, historical cell site records present even greater privacy concerns. They give the government near-perfect surveillance and allow it to travel back in time to retrace a person's whereabouts, subject only to the five-year retention policies of most wireless carriers. The government contends that CSLI data is less precise than GPS information, but it thought the data accurate enough here to highlight it during closing argument in Carpenter's trial. The government contends that the third-party doctrine governs this case because cell site records, like the records in Smith & Miller, are business records created and maintained by wireless carriers, but there is a world of difference between the limited types of personal information addressed in Smith & Miller and the exhaustive chronicle of location information casually collected by wireless carriers. The third-party doctrine stems from the notion that an individual has a reduced expectation of privacy in information knowingly shared with another. Smith & Miller, however, did not rely solely on the act of sharing. They also considered the nature of the particular document sought and limitations on any legitimate expectation of privacy concerning their contents. In mechanically applying the third-party doctrine to this case, the government fails to appreciate the lack of comparable limitations on the revealing nature of CSLI. Cell phone location information is not truly shared as the term is normally understood. First, cell phones and the services they provide are such a pervasive and insistent part of daily life that carrying one is indispensable to participation in modern society. Second, a cell phone logs a cell site record by dint of its operation without any affirmative act on the user's part beyond powering up. Gorsuch dissented, but he claimed the decision didn't go far enough. They should have questioned the third-party doctrine itself, quote, I do not agree with the court's decision today to keep Smith and Miller on life support and supplement them with a new and multi-layered inquiry that seems to be only cat-squared. Returning there, I worry, promises more trouble than help. Instead, I would look to a more traditional Fourth Amendment approach. It seems to me entirely possible a person's cell site data could qualify as his papers or effects under existing law. 
Yes, the telephone carrier holds the information, but 47 U.S.C. Section 222 designates a customer's cell site location information as Customer Proprietary Network Information, CPNI, and gives customers certain rights to control use of and access to CPNI about themselves. The statute generally forbids a carrier to use, disclose, or permit access to individually identifiable CPNI without the customer's consent except as needed to provide the customer's telecommunications services. Plainly, customers have substantial legal interests in this information, including at least some right to include, exclude, and control its use. Those interests might even rise to the level of a property right. But although, as Gorsuch points out, this case isn't everything a privacy advocate should want, it is much better than the trend we've seen of police, prosecutors, and even judges saying we have no reasonable expectation of privacy with regards to our cell phone records. Roberts delivered the opinion and was joined by Ginsburg, Breyer, Sotomayor, and Kagan, so they each get a point. Dissenting were Kennedy, Thomas, and Alito, so they all lose a point. Gorsuch dissented too, but because of the nature of his dissent and fully advocating for Fourth Amendment protections, I have to give him a point on this one. So overall, at the bottom of the heap, we have Kennedy, Thomas, and Ginsburg with negative one each, Alito, Gorsuch, Sotomayor, Kagan, and Breyer with one point each, and Roberts is the hero of the day with a full three points. The only one who ruled for the people against the government in all three cases. We live in a world where light bulbs connect to the internet, and recent attacks on them prove that your online security is under threat like never before. Not only your websites, but the internet-enabled devices you buy. And the biggest problem is weak passwords. That's why you need LastPass. LastPass allows you to randomly generate strong, unique passwords on the web and on your internet-enabled devices, all protected by one master password. LastPass sets up in minutes and gives you secure automatic logins throughout the web, synchronizing across all your browsers, all your computers, and even your mobile devices, at home, at work, or on the road. It even securely stores sensitive form data, including credit card numbers, backup sensitive documents, software licenses, Wi-Fi logins, and more. And with LastPass Premium, you can get these benefits on other applications, manage passwords for your entire family, and also get priority customer support. Sign up at password.bogosity.tv for a free month of LastPass Premium. Log in securely everywhere using the last password you'll ever have to remember. Go to password.bogosity.tv and get LastPass now. And now it's time to give a mud bath to this week's biggest bogan emitter. And believe it or not, we've never done the Southern Poverty Law Center, the group that maintains hit lists against political opponents, calling them, often wrongly, hate groups, including groups not at all hateful like the Tenth Amendment Center. Thomas DiLorenzo seems to have made the list for nothing more than daring to impugn the good name of the Holy Saint Lincoln. Now, at least 60 different organizations are considering filing lawsuits against the SPLC after the organization settled with Majid Nawaz for $3.375 million after claiming Nawaz, who was a practicing Muslim, was an anti-Muslim extremist. The SPLC's reasons for putting him on the list kept changing and morphing and at one point included as evidence the fact that he had gone to a strip club for his bachelor party. 
According to Liberty Council founder and chairman Matt Staver, quote, I think a number of organizations have been considering filing lawsuits against the SPLC because they have been doing to a lot of organizations exactly what they did to Majid Nawaz. The allegations that were at issue here were very similar to the allegations against the other groups. The SPLC promotes false propaganda, demonizes and labels groups they disagree with, and that labeling has economic as well as physical consequences. And yet progressives take the SPLC's list as gospel truth, as does the news media. Their lies can have very harmful effects on individuals and organizations. Last year, leaders of 47 different nonprofits denounced the SPLC in an open letter to the media saying, quote, to associate public interest law firms and think tanks with neo-Nazis and the KKK is unconscionable and represents the height of irresponsible journalism. All reputable news organizations should immediately stop using the SPLC's descriptions of individuals and organizations based on its obvious political prejudices. In response, the SPLC came out and said that inclusion on these lists was, get this, opinion. Sorry, but you can't spew hatred and slander against people and organizations and get out of it by saying, it's just my opinion. According to Jeremy Tedesco, Senior Counsel at Alliance Defending Freedom, quote, It's appalling and offensive for the Southern Poverty Law Center to compare peaceful organizations which condemn violence and racism with violent and racist groups just because it disagrees with their views. That's what the SPLC did in the case of Nawaz, and that's what it's done with ADF and numerous other organizations and individuals. This situation confirms once again what commentators across the political spectrum have been saying for decades. SPLC has become a far-left organization that brands its political opponents as haters and extremists and has lost all credibility as a civil rights watchdog. SPLC's partisan tactics and slander have ruinous real-world consequences for which they should not be excused. Hopefully this is the beginning of the end for this horrendous organization, because unlike many that they point their grubby fingers at, the SPLC actually is a hate group. It's all about hating people and organizations who go against their political dogma and working to destroy them. So the least we can do is to make the Southern Poverty Law Center this week's biggest bogan emitter. If you're going to shop online, use our special links to shop at Amazon. Clear your cookies and go to Amazon.Bogosity.tv and you won't pay a penny more for your purchase. If you haven't used the mobile app in the last 12 months, or even at all, go to get5.bogosity.tv on your phone or tablet and get $5 off your order of $10 or more. Go to prime.bogosity.tv for a free 30-day trial of Amazon Prime and enjoy thousands of movies and TV episodes, borrow Kindle books, and get unlimited two-day shipping for free. And speaking of Kindle, go to kindle.bogosity.tv for a 30-day free trial to Kindle Unlimited, read over one million books, and listen to thousands of audiobooks on any device. You can go to music.bogosity.tv and get a free 30-day trial of Amazon Music Unlimited with access to Amazon's entire library of 10 million songs, ad-free and with unlimited skips, and even download to listen offline. All great ways to help this podcast simply by shopping at Amazon. And now let's give a helicopter ride to this week's Idiot, 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 Idiot,
And this week it goes to President Donald Trump, his fourth overall, not counting three other times when he took biggest bogan emitter. So Trump claims that immigrants take jobs from Americans. We've covered at length how that isn't true. In fact, each unskilled immigrant creates 1.2 jobs for unskilled natives. But he also said that protectionist tariffs create jobs. He's wrong there, too. The Trump administration has imposed high tariffs of 25% on steel imports and 10% on aluminum. But while a trade partnership analysis concluded that it did create 26,280 jobs for American steel and aluminum workers, the same analysis concluded that the tariffs destroyed 432,747 jobs elsewhere in the economy. These tariffs cost Americans 16 jobs for every job gained. Because, you see, these other industries need steel and aluminum too, and what do you expect to happen when you increase their cost of doing business? More than two-thirds of the job loss are in production and low-skill jobs, and the job losses are occurring in every single state. But this is what happens when you put blinkers on and only look at the desired effects of your policy. Remember your Hazlitt. Don't just look at intended effects on target groups, but at all effects on all groups. Meanwhile, a study for the National Foundation for American Policy found, quote, the results of the state-level analysis indicate that immigration does not increase U.S. natives' unemployment or reduce their labor force participation. Instead, having more immigrants reduces the unemployment rate and raises the labor force participation rate of U.S. natives within the same sex and education group. Specifically, a one percentage point increase in immigrants in the labor force reduces unemployment of natives by 0.062% and increases labor force participation by 0.045%. Moreover, there is no evidence of adverse side effects on immigration for any of the groups examined. These findings are supported by research from Giovanni Perry, quote, Our analysis shows that CZ6100, that's Marshall and DeKalb counties in Alabama, experienced extraordinary growth in immigrant population between 1990 and 2010, increasing their population share by a factor close to 10. This was very different from the experience of other counties that we take as a control group. The employment and wages of less educated natives and of natives in the slaughtering sector, however, did not show much difference between CZ6100 and the control group over the same period. Hence, as documented in the economic literature, there does not seem to be very much evidence of negative wage or employment effects of immigrants on natives. And the reason why is evident to anyone who understands Say's law, as Perry says, quote, Immigrants not only bring labor, but also local demand, and often they work in jobs differentiated from those of natives. Moreover, their presence may attract investment and bring the creation of complementary jobs for native-born workers. So Trump promised that he would create jobs by raising tariffs and reducing immigration. But those are policies that destroy jobs. If he really wants to increase employment for natives, he'd be reducing restrictions on immigration and getting rid of tariffs and other forms of protectionism. So all of that makes Donald Trump this week's Idiot up this we had a great time on the bench talking about crime mother stabbing father raping all kinds of groovy things edition of the bogosity podcast come join the discussion at forum.bogosity.tv or discord.bogosity.tv and feel free to send a question statement news article or rant in text or audio to podcast at bogosity.tv 
This podcast depends on you to keep going, so please donate using the links on the website or the QR codes in the thumbnail or support Shane DK on Patreon or Maker Support to get the podcast and YouTube videos early and without ads or promos. Thank you for listening. Until next time, here's a quote from Edward Snowden. Privacy isn't about something to hide. Privacy is about something to protect. Privacy is the right to the self. Privacy is the foundation from which all other rights are derived. It's a kind of fountainhead from which all of these rights spring out. The Bogosity Podcast is licensed under Creative Commons Attribution on Commercial Derivatives 4.0 International License. Bogosity. Want answers to creationist claims against evolution? Would you like to know more about evolution yourself, or even engage creationists more directly, with actual peer-reviewed sources to back you up? My book, How Evolution is Scientific, is designed to show the basics of evolutionary theory and how it is so well supported using the scientific method. It's impeccably sourced, with references to the actual scientific material, and is arranged using the creationists' own criteria of what is scientific. Using their own arguments against them, see how evolution is scientific, but creationism is not. Based on observations, accurate predictions, logic, and evidence. Get answers to common creationist claims, and even a primer on abiogenesis, the start of all life. It's all in my book, How Evolution is Scientific, available at Amazon, and on Kindle, EPUB, and PDF as well. Get How Evolution is Scientific and never be taken in by creationists again.